Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, good to see everybody. Good to uh, be here with you. If you have your scriptures, open up to Mark chapter 2 with me. Mark chapter 2. Hope you had a great Christmas holiday. Um, remember, of Christians, Christmas is just getting started. We've got 12 days of Christmas, which will end on Epiphany on January 6th. Um, but we'll jump back into our Mark series and actually made some progress this morning. So progress for me, when we go through books, is when we get to turn a page in the Bible. And so I don't know in your Bibles, but in my Bible we get to turn from one page to another. And so that's a big deal. Uh, so we'll get there. This morning we'll end up chapter 2 and get into chapter 3. Um, we've got three stories we'll go through this morning. They're all related though, and we'll see this morning how they're related. Uh, so we'll make some progress together this morning. And one of my favorite things about Jesus, and this probably tells you more about me than it does about Jesus, but is that he was constantly making people mad and getting into trouble. Uh, he seemed to have this penchant for stepping on people's toes and, and getting them mad. Uh, Jesus had this, I would dare say, a gift for upsetting people uh, and for being able to step on just the right toes and cross just the right boundaries. You could probably divide up most of the people in the world into one of two groups. You have rule followers and rule breakers. Um, you have the people who, inside of them, just the way they're wired, they want to follow all the rules. They don't care why the rule's there. They don't care about the reason behind the rule. If it's a rule, they want to follow the rules. It upsets them. If other people aren't following the rules, it just really gets them all worked up and in and, and a, and a bunch, okay? And the rule's there, and so they're going to follow the rule. doesn't matter. There's no need to question. That's the beauty of rules. That's why the rule is there. They're going to follow the rules. And then you have people like me who are the rule breakers, who, because the rule exists, we want to break the rule. The rule exists to be broken. I didn't want to cross that line until you told me, don't cross that line. Now, all of a sudden, there's nothing I'd rather do than cross that line. Um, just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you consider yourself a rule keeper uh, this morning. This is her right over here. Okay, right there. I'm guessing, actually, I, that's, so that's most of us in this room. I'm in the minority. And I guess that that would be the case. This is the Christmas after Sunday on a cold, rainy morning. Um, all factors which lead to low attendance. But our rule keepers here said, it's Sunday morning, the rule is, you go to church. I can tell you exactly where the rule breakers are. They're where, where I would be if I was not paid to be here and to be preaching. They're in bed. They said, hey, whatever. It's cold, it's rainy, it's a Sunday after Christmas, it's been a stressful week, okay? I'm staying in bed. So I knew we were going to have our rule keepers here this morning with us. Um, we'll see, though, uh, this morning. It might be frustrating to you. It makes me happy. Um, Jesus... Uh, gets on the nerves of, of certain rule keepers uh, that you'll see here in the scripture. So let's read the stories together in Mark chapter 2. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 18. Uh, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. On one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in the need and, and was hungry? And to those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, 
which is not to be lawful for any to eat, but for the priest. And also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to him, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, uh, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. Then he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, chapter 3, verse 6, the, the Pharisees go out and, and held counsel with uh, the Herodians how to destroy him. Mark's an important point in Mark's gospel. Um, this is now the first organized opposition we've seen against Jesus. The stakes just got raised because of these encounters that Jesus has um, with the, the people around him, his contemporaries, uh, with these clashes. And from here on out, everything Jesus does will be set in this context. Um, there is organized opposition. The cross is looming for Jesus. He has made the wrong people upset. You see here in these three stories, Jesus crosses lines he's not supposed to cross. And Jesus does these in ways that almost seemingly on purpose are going to make people upset. Now, some of the things that these stories have in common. In all three of these stories, Jesus crossed the line that he knows he's not supposed to cross. Um, he does something that he knows at least will make other people upset with him. Now, in all three of these stories, we're not sure whether Jesus is actually breaking a rule or not. Um, the Pharisees were known for creating rules of their own, um, creating kind of extra biblical rules, um, being very legalistic in that sense. It could be that Jesus is breaking those kind of oral rules. Um, and not scriptural rules. We're not sure exactly how much rule breaking is going on. Um, for instance, when Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath day, Jesus technically, even if it is, if you accept that it's a law not to work on the Sabbath, Jesus doesn't do anything but say, stretch out your hand, right? I mean, he doesn't even touch the guy. So it's questionable whether he actually even breaks the rule. Um, all three of these stories share that in common. There's almost this playfulness with Jesus, um, where he does enough to make people upset and make them think he's clearly broken the rule, while those who sit back objectively might go, well, did he really break it? I mean, did he, how far really did he step over the line? Um, Jesus, though, very much on purpose steps over the line uh, and seemingly on purpose makes these people upset. Um, the principle I think we get here from Jesus is that his identity, knowing who he is and celebrating who he is, and then the weightier matters of the law are for Jesus the guiding principles of how Christians are to live, of how Jesus and his disciples are to live, beyond the rules and regulations that you find created by God's people. Um, so as humans, we live by laws, and we live by rules, and we create applications for our lives, ways that um, we should be living. Um, Jesus, though, holds all of these rules, these laws, as flexible. Um, so rules about fasting and rules about Sabbath day. To Jesus, these are all very flexible, and he's willing to flex them, if it comes into tension with celebrating who he is, with recognizing with good eyes, with clear eyes, who he is, or with doing the weightier matters of the law. This is something he gets mad at the Pharisees about often. In Matthew 23, he says, you're doing all these tiny nitpicky laws, but you're neglecting the bigger things. For Jesus, not all laws or not all rules are created the same or equal. Um, there are some that are weightier, that are heavier, that are more important to fall. Now, for these, you'll find Jesus is very unflexible, inflexible. Jesus never shifts these. Um, Jesus is, though, willing to plow through some of the little laws that the Pharisees have created to keep in line with what he would consider the inflexible laws, the weightier laws. These are things like justice and love and mercy. 
For Jesus, things like tithing and fasting and Sabbath laws are good and great. Again, I don't think Jesus throws the baby away with the bathwater here. Um, but, but Jesus is very much willing to, to go out of line with at least what his contemporaries were expecting of him. If it meant it would go to life. It would lead him to a place of justice and love and mercy for his neighbor. Um, the rules are there to uh, support life, to bring us to life. The moment that the little rules we create for our lives no longer lead us to life or prevent others from getting to life, Jesus says, knock them down, get rid of them. Um, they're, they're not helping you out. They're not helping anyone else out. Um, you have examples of this throughout the scriptures. So in the Old Testament, it seems as if God's desire for creation is for a man to be with a wife for monogamy. Um, but during wartime, God gives exceptions to this for the Israelites. And so when lots of Israelite men are being killed, God allows um, for extended periods of time polygamy um, for men to take on multiple women. Um, because if a woman were to be widowed during that time, right, they would have no protection. Them and their kids would be vulnerable. And so God has this higher law, right, of love and mercy um, for these women and these widows. And he's willing to let go of the, 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 the lower law about marriage. He's willing to say, look, in order to protect these women, um, we'll allow polygamy for a time. And, and you need to take in as many um, wives as you can. You need to protect the widow. Um, God seems to have this kind of ability to, um, to, to go for this unflexible nature of love and justice and mercy, even if that means flexing some of the littler, um, more minute laws that he has in place. And that also, uh, doesn't always mean that it's bad, right? Monogamy is good. Monogamy is God's plan for creation. Um, but in that time period... Um, in that special circumstance, God seems to suspend that law to go after a larger law, to go after a weightier law. Um, you can think of, I mean, there's all kinds of ways this applies today. There are all kinds of ways. Uh, I think for some of us, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, and so Southern Baptists uh, are real good at creating uh, little laws that maybe aren't necessarily scriptural, um, that we apply to our lives and then apply to other people's lives, and sometimes keep people from finding life, and sometimes keep people from finding love, sometimes keep people from um, giving justice and extending mercy and, and all those kind of things. Um, you can think of the man who, because it's a rule, goes to church every Sunday. And he goes to church every Sunday, like clockwork, because that's the rule, that's what you have to do to be a Christian. But then he goes home and he drinks his life away and beats his wife. Right? And, and you think clearly, right, the, that rule is not doing anything for him. That rule is pointless in his life. Um, the rule is, is meant to bring him life, to bring him transformation. But in this case, um, the rule is not doing anything for him. In these three stories, Jesus teaches us that um, little laws are to be understood in the context of who he is and in the context of the weightier matters of what he's come here to do. Um, and that when there's tension between those two, um, the little rules are, are more than okay to be flexed with. Jesus steps over them. Um, so let's look through these three stories. They all have something interesting about them. The first one is about fasting. Um, so John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. Um, and Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. This is the basic context for this conflict. Um, and they come up to him and say, hey, why is everyone else fasting but you and your disciples aren't fasting? Um, now, this is interesting for us to think about. Excessive fasting, I don't think, is a problem we have in the West, uh, in our culture of Christianity. Uh, I teach at a Christian high school, and when we go through, I teach the gospel, so we go through the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you fast, do it in private. And I often get asked, what is fasting? And they don't even know what it is, much less that they should be doing it in private. 
And then when I explain to them, well, typically fasting, you can have different forms, but you don't eat for a period of time. And they go, do people do that? <laughs> these are Christians their whole life. I mean, these are, it's just not really a part of our culture. In the first century, though, it's very much a part of their culture. It's very much a part of their religious observance. Um, probably easier to fast when you're already on the low end of the spectrum food-wise to begin with, right? Kind of make a virtue out of a necessity. And so they're very familiar with fasting. John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, fast all the time. Um, the Pharisees and their disciples fast. Jesus and his disciples don't fast. You'll see Jesus is on the liberal side of all of these rules here. He, he's kind of on the side of like, well, who cares about these rules um, for all three of these instances? And so he gives a response for why he doesn't fast, and he gives three images. The first one is of a wedding. He says, if there's a wedding happening and the bridegroom is there with them, um, you celebrate, you feast. You don't fast in that moment. You realize the good things that are happening and you enjoy them. Uh, he's, he gives two more examples to go with it. It's like clothing. You don't put a piece of unshrunk cloth on garments that have already been shrunk. When you put that together, it's going to break. Same with wine um, and old wineskins. It's going to be destroyed. The old doesn't always go with the new. Um, for a first century Jew, most of their fasting times would have been times to remember bad things that had happened to them and to their nation. Would have been times of mourning and lamenting, particularly the exile. You would have remembered um, the fact that Jerusalem had been destroyed by Babylon. Um, you would remember that you're still under the oppression of Rome, that you are still, in a sense, in exile under foreign masters. Jesus, though, is saying, if you recognize the moment we're in, it's not appropriate to fast. The moment that we're in is a moment of celebration. He compares his ministry to that of a wedding. He says, the bridegroom is here. We're celebrating. If you really recognized what was going on with me and with my ministry, you wouldn't be fasting. There's no need to mourn at this point in history. At this point in history, we're celebrating. It's inappropriate to mourn. And he even mentions when the bridegroom is gone, now you might fast. You might long for him to return. Which is why Christians now think it's appropriate for us to fast and to feast. One of the songs we sing, I love it, asks the Lord to teach us to balance the fast and the feast. To teach us to balance the celebration we have that Jesus has already come, and yet the, the fasting, the, the longing that we have for him to come again. Um, I would say as Christians, while you see Jesus leaning away from fasting here in the story, ironically, I think maybe the story should itself teach us to lean into fasting as well, to wonder what role spiritual disciplines might have in our own formation. I think because, perhaps because Jesus goes on the liberal side of these fasting and Sabbath laws, Christians have followed and kept going this way. And so we've now got to the point in our lives where fasting for some of us means nothing at all. And we might wonder... Well, what, what role might there be for fasting in our lives? Lots of Christians have found fasting to be something that is spiritually nourishing to them. Um, but for Jesus, recognizing who he is explains why his disciples and he uh, are not fasting. Uh, Jesus is crossing this line that his contemporaries didn't want him to cross. And, and Jesus is very much aware of um, what he's doing and the consequences it will have. Now, in this second story, we get a Sabbath story. These second and third stories are the third and fourth Sabbath stories we get in Mark. Uh, and this is what really makes the um, contemporary Pharisees upset with him and what leads to his crucifixion. He crosses these laws that are uncrossable for the Pharisees. The Sabbath law which is one of the laws for an Israelite is Sabbath and circumcision. These were the two things that separated an Israelite from a Gentile. Um, and, and, and the Pharisees had come up with all of these, again, oral traditions about the Sabbath law. So it wasn't just don't work on the Sabbath, take one day of rest. It was also this is what's considered work and this is what's not considered work. You're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this. 
they come up with little rules, right? These kind of legalistic applications. And perhaps it's this that Jesus is stepping over uh, and hurting feelings as he does so. Um, but what's happened? He's going through the grain fields with his disciples, and his disciples are plucking heads of grain, okay? Um, again, we're not sure if this is actually against the rules. We know it's against the rules for the Pharisees. We're not sure if it's against the actual rules uh, like that God had set up in the scriptures. There are some scriptures that would make you think that's not against the rules, um, and there are some that would make you think this is against the rules. Um, it's not quite certain. We are sure the Pharisees think this is completely against the rules. Um, they are considered to be working here by plucking heads of grain uh, on the Sabbath. Um, the Pharisees are watching him. They're a lot like the NSA here, okay? Um, they are like this unofficial police force spying on Jesus and his disciples. They would not have cared what the normal Jew was doing on a Sabbath day, um, but Jesus has already been marked out for them. Uh, and so... Much like, I think, journalists following a politician in today's day, right, waiting to get dirt on them, you see the Pharisees here following Jesus, waiting for him to cross the line. Again, this is why I say, and we'll see it in the next story, I think Jesus at times goes out of his way to give them the dirt they're looking for. Um, I mean, he wants them to realize, I'm stepping on this toe for a reason. I'm, I'm doing it on purpose. And so they say, um, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't say because it's lawful. He's, he pleads special circumstance, and he says, it's happened before. Another king before me has done it. So his response, pay careful attention. He says, have you ever read? Have you never read? And he's referring to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. Now, my rule keepers might want to write that down because it's going to come in to be an interesting fact uh, about this passage. He's referring to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and those, uh, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abithiar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, um, the kings had a right to make a road through private property. They had a right to go and put the grain, eminent domain right of any in their nation. Um, what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing himself to King David. He's saying, I'm the king, so I have the right to eat this, um, this field, this, this grain here. So do my disciples. Uh, he says it's happened before with King David. Um, and uh, Jesus is also making a very interesting comparison to, to King David. Um, king David, when this story is happening, has been anointed king, but he hasn't been enthroned king. So Samuel said, you're going to be the king, but he's not actually taking the throne. Saul is still on the throne. Interestingly enough, this is where Jesus is in his ministry. He's been anointed king. The spirit has come on him at his baptism, anointed him. But he has not been enthroned. He hasn't been resurrected and sat at the Father's right hand. But perhaps more interesting than the analogy Jesus makes between him and King David is the fact that if you actually go back and read 1 Samuel 21, 1-6, you'll find that Jesus gets the story all wrong. Almost every detail of the story that Jesus quotes here is wrong, is incorrect. It's not how it goes down in 1 Samuel 21. Um, and it's interesting listening to, so one of the things I do in sermon prep is I'll listen to other pastors and how they preach the text. And it's been interesting to see how different pastors deal with the fact here that Jesus is um, misquoting scripture here, that, that this is not a very accurate representation of the story of what David does. Um, most people just kind of sweep it under the rug and don't mention it and go through it, right? Um, that's not who we are at FCQ. That's not who I am um, as a preacher. Um, Jesus here, so for instance, 
Um, the high priest is not Abithiar when David does this. It's a different high priest. David's by himself when he does this. There's no one else. Um, there's no mention of being hungry when David does this. He just does it. Uh, there's no mention that he, he needs it or that he eats it. He just does it. Um, it's not on a Sabbath when David does this. I mean, there are just lots of details of the story that Jesus is very loose and goose, uh, loosey-goosey with um, when he's referring. Have you never read 1 Samuel um, 21? Quotes his story. Now, there are two ways of explaining this. Um, and the one way is to say that in the first century, Jewish people were just a lot more loose with the scriptures than we are. Things that would make us kind of uh, cringe, like adding or taking away details, didn't really affect them as much. And this is true. This is a true fact. Um, Jewish people are much more loose with the scriptures. Um, midrash. They're much more willing to kind of twist the details a little bit to make it fit their situations. Um, there's another way of reading this, though, that I thought was very interesting as I studied this week. And it was the suggestion that perhaps Jesus is misquoting Scripture here on purpose. Perhaps he's making a point, an ironic point, in his response. In the fact that the Pharisees, who are trying to burden him down with these extra-biblical rules and traditions, don't know the Scriptures well enough to realize that he's misquoting upon misquoting. That they don't actually call him on the misquotes. Um, and they noticed that, so there's a famous book out by a skeptic, Bart Ehrman, called Misquoting Scripture. And it goes through the Bible and points out contradictions and ways that the Bible gets itself wrong, ways that the Bible misquotes itself. And, and this would be one of these places, right, where Jesus himself doesn't seem to know the Bible very well. I mean, he blatantly misquotes the story from David. Um, and there are all kinds of ways to explain and to counteract some of these contradictions. Um, but it seems like maybe Jesus here is misquoting Scripture on purpose, I found at least this is true in my own experience, that people who use clobber text, uh, people who use verses to condemn others and to, to bring hate upon them, often don't actually know the Bible very well. Mm. They often don't actually know the context of those verses or uh, how it fits into the overall narrative of the scriptures. Um, and in fact, I hesitate to admit this. I've done this in class before uh, as a high school teacher <laughs> with kids uh, who want to get in arguments with me about certain things. And they have one or two texts memorized, right? These mm -hmm. clobber texts. These, no, it's wrong because of this. And it says this right here in the Bible. And so I'll play a game with them, which I like to call lying. Uh, <laughs> where I'll be like, all right, stop the discussion. And for like 10 or 15 minutes, I'll go on like this mini lecture. All of it completely made up. Uh, about things that are in the scriptures and why they're wrong and things like that. And they're taking notes and they're like, oh, this is interesting. And I get to the end and I'm like, so now do you agree with me? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, let me tell you something. All of that is a lie. All of that was completely made up. Mike, None of that is in the Bible at all. Is what you're saying that in Hezekiah 4.13, it's not true that God helps those who help themselves? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, we miss I, I scripture all that, the time. We had that sword drill, and I landed on Hezekiah, and that's what I got. Yeah, exactly. And uh, awesome. <laughs> so you have, uh, and it's this object lesson for the kids, right? That um, usually the people who quote scripture most and hate don't know it very well. Wouldn't even be able to recognize it if it was being misused, um, like they're misusing it. One of my favorite internet memes uh, was of this kind of redneck guy uh, at a protest against homosexuality, and he had a Bible verse on his arm, tattooed with like guns and a flag behind it and a cross, you know. Um, and and it said, "A man shall not lie with another man; it's abomination to the Lord." And the reporter was pointing out that the next verse is, "You shouldn't tattoo yourself." Uh, and she's like, "You should keep reading the passage. I mean, it just doesn't." Before you tattoo it on yourself, uh, this very same passage tells you not to get a tattoo. Um, so I, I would say in my own experience, this is true. Uh, when people 
have these kind of favorite kind of clobber texts that don't usually know the scriptures very well. Um, so Mark, um, the scholar who was making the suggestion, points out that Mark, out of all books of the Bible, almost never misremembers scripture. Uh, he gets a scripture to a T, right? You remember Mark's writing this. Um, he would have known, writing this down, even if Jesus himself had misquoted this, he would have known that this is not right. This is not how the story goes. There would have been lots of opportunities for people to edit this and to take out this mistake, unless they caught the irony of it. Mm-hmm. And unless they realized what was going on here, um, Mark never gets scripture wrong. But in this case, he lets allows Jesus to misremember the story. Perhaps it's because Jesus is being uh, ironic here, uh, and Jesus is saying, "Look, you don't even know the Bible well enough to call me out on it when I'm making stuff up about this story. Um, but yet, you want to be able to um, burden me with these laws." And he gives this principle, this this really deep, beautiful principle in verse 27: "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath." So yes, God gave the command for man not to work on the Sabbath, but he gave it so that man might find life. Not so that man might be burdened down. Not so that man might be stifled by overbearing rules and laws and legalistic traditions. He says, the son of man, me, I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. I'm Lord even of the Sabbath. There's life to be found in the Sabbath. Again, I don't think Jesus throws the baby out with the bathwater. I would say, again, ironically, I think as Christians, maybe we need to reconsider the point of the Sabbath. Maybe we need to be reminded, maybe we should be keeping the Sabbath more than we currently are. Maybe as Christians, we've gotten so used to um, thinking that Jesus is this anarchist who thinks no loss and no routine and no structure is good, that maybe we need to be reminded that there is life to be found in the Sabbath and finding a day of rest and finding routines and times of peace and um, leaving work behind. Um, but Jesus says, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this principle will play itself out even uh, in starker contrast in the last story. As he goes into a synagogue, again, Jesus knows that attention has been drawn to him. Okay, He knows that he's offended people. He goes out of his way, it seems like to me, to push on the wound, to pour salt in the wound. He goes into the synagogue. There's a man there with a withered hand. A man with a withered hand, this is not a pressing need. Okay, This is not, this guy's going to die any second now. Jesus could have waited the next day to heal the man. He could have taken him outside to the back out of attention and healed the man. He does it in front of everybody with everyone watching on purpose. Right? He sees the wound and he's pressing on the wound. Um, he's trying to get these Pharisees riled up here. Um, they're watching him to see whether he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Right? Everyone knows what's going on, including Jesus. What's he going to do? Is he going to continue to, to step over our lines we've set up for what you're allowed to do on the Sabbath? Um, and Jesus wants to play the game. He says, come here. And he asks them, is it lawful for me to heal this guy according to your laws? Am I, am I not allowed to heal this man with a withered hand? Uh, have you taken what was meant for man and turned it into something that will now hurt and distort man, will keep him from finding life and from finding healing? Um, and they're silent. They have no answer, right? They realize they've been cornered. And Jesus is says, filled with anger, grieved with their hardness of heart, which is interesting because usually hardness of heart is used to describe people who are breaking the Sabbath. But ironically, now it's being described for people who are trying to keep the Sabbath. But in so doing, their hearts are hardened. And they're keeping people from life and from receiving life. He's angered, grieved their hardness of heart. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, his hand was restored. Again, it's not clear that Jesus actually even breaks the Sabbath, even according to the Pharisees' own standards. Um, but from here on out, the Pharisees went out immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Um, the Sabbath rule is meant to support God's overarching desire for man to find life. Um, 
And, and, and at the point where the Sabbath rule had been applied in such a way that it kept someone from finding life, Jesus says, get rid of it. Let's be flexible here. The inflexible law here is justice and love and mercy. Um, the, the legalistic applications of your Sabbath uh, rituals are very flexible in my mind. Um, two things I want us to take from these three stories um, that I think you find in all three of them. One, I would want us to reconsider uh, the spiritual disciplines of fasting and Sabbath and, and things of that nature. Again, this is somewhat of an ironic application of this text. Um, the text has Jesus leaning away from fasting and away from Sabbath. Um, but I think he's leaning away from the legalistic application of fasting and Sabbath. I don't think, again, that he throws the baby out with the bathwater. I think there is a lot of life to be found in practices of fasting and practices of Sabbath, uh, as long as those don't become overbearing, burdensome, life-hindering rules in your life. Um, so, so, so maybe there is some merit there to some of these spiritual disciplines. And again, as a rule breaker, um, this is hard for me to say, right? But, but maybe there are times where fasting works, and maybe there are times... We, we have this tendency, if we don't put rules in our lives, if we don't take some of the higher principles and put rules in our lives, we'll self-collapse in on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we just tend to do this as human beings. So let's take generosity, for instance, right? A higher, weightier matter of the law is humans should be generous. God is generous. You're called to be generous. Um, now, there's not one rule that fits everybody for how you're supposed to be generous, Everyone has to sell this amount of stuff. Everyone has to give this amount of money. Everyone has to do this or do that or do this or do that. No, everyone's called to be generous, but it's going to play itself out in different ways, in different contexts. There's going to be different applications for that. Um, What that means is not that you don't need a rule. What it means is you don't need to put your rule on other people. But you might need a rule, right? I mean, you might need to say to yourself, I need to give 10%. Because if I don't have that barrier, if I don't have that kind of fits boundary in my life, I'm going to spend 99% on myself. So I'm going to create a rule, 10%, and this is going to be marked off. This is how I'm going to budget my year um, in 2015. Um, the, the, where you'd be stepping over your bounds is when you start applying your own rules to other people, right? Mm-hmm. And then looking down on condemning, hating, judging those people for not following your own rules. This is when you cross over into the, the Pharisaic um, action and activity that, that Jesus condemned so much throughout his, his lifestyle and ministry and that frustrates so many of the Pharisees uh, as he goes through his ministry, as he goes through his teaching. Um, um, rules, I think, are, are fine. Disciplines are fine. It's when you take extra-biblical rules and extra-biblical disciplines and you force them upon other people that Jesus is going to say, be very, very careful here. Uh, be inflexible with the way your matters of the law, but be flexible in how they're applied and be flexible with the rules that you find helpful um, for your own life in, in getting those ways. Um, with preaching, it's always difficult because you, you always want to give people um, clear applications, so clear ways people can apply the things that you're preaching. And, and then on the other hand, there's this tension, right, and this knowledge that, that what, how I might apply the command to be generous is not going to be necessarily how you're called to apply the command to be generous. And so there has to be um, freedom in this area. And you'll find pastors on both ends of the spectrums, right? You'll find pastors and churches that are more um, specific in how you should apply certain things from the Bible. And so their people will be more specific in how they and other people should apply certain things from the Bible. Um, I grew up in this kind of culture. There are very specific rules and boundaries for things outside of the scriptures that you are supposed to do or not supposed to do. On the other end of the spectrum, you'll find people who are probably a little bit more like me. If you've been around our cube, you've noticed this. The application is kind of vague and generous. 
Um, there's, there's wiggle room for you to figure out how it applies in your own life. Not that it doesn't need to be applied. It needs to be applied. And that might involve you creating a rule for yourself. You creating some sort of discipline for yourself. But that discipline is not something that, that I can necessarily put down for everybody. That I can put down for you in your circumstance. It's something that you need to wrestle with God and your family and your friends about. Um, be inflexible with the larger principles of justice and love and mercy. But be flexible with the smaller um, little rules here. Tithing, I think, is a, a good example of this, being generous in your money. Um, there's all kinds of ways that this, this might play itself out. And so the second application, I think, from this text, not only maybe examine what disciplines we could incorporate into our lives, but ask the Lord to open our eyes up to ways in which we've maybe set rules down that don't need to be set down, mm-hmm. um, in ways that maybe we're making it um, more burdensome for others to enter into the kingdom. Um, what things might Jesus, if he was here today, how might he offend us? How might he offend our sensibilities? Um, in what ways might our eyes be opened up to realizing that's not actually um, a law or that's not actually a weightier matter of the law or, or what we've incorporated in our lives actually is keeping us or others from receiving love and justice uh, and mercy. Um, Jesus is very inflexible about his pursuit of justice and mercy and love. If the man has a withered hand, he's going to heal him. If the disciples are hungry, they're going to eat. Um, if the bridegroom is there, they're going to party. And he could care less what the little rules are that have been built up around him by other people. Um, and Jesus is very flexible about these legalistic rules that people apply that aren't always bad. I mean, I think that's, the, that's what you've got to be careful with, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, the, the Pharisees, I think, sometimes get an unnecessarily bad rap. These, some of them, at least, are very good guys who very much want to follow the law and be very pious people. The problem is they, they do it in a, a way... In a way too inflexible for Jesus. Jesus says, no, you need to be more flexible with these legal, uh, these little legalistic laws that you've built and, and be more inflexible with the weightier matters of the law. So what disciplines perhaps can we incorporate into our lives? And then in what ways um, might Jesus defend us? Might, might Jesus look at our lives and the rules and expectations we place on others and say, um, are you truly valuing the weightier matters of the law here? Or are you hindering other people from, from experiencing the kingdom and following me? Would you pray with me? Father, we love